Our scripture reading is from John chapter 17. We continue to move through the gospel of John. John 17, we'll read verses 1 to 5. Would you please stand for the reading of the Holy Scripture? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, before the world existed. And may God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit you would come and speak to us, that we would see our Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up, that we would hear him, and that hearing him, his sheep would know him and follow him, and that we all would offer ourselves to him promptly and sincerely in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, and for his honor and glory, amen. Be seated, please. The glory of God. On Monday, November 24, 1672, John Knox, the great reformer of the Church of Scotland and generally considered the father of Presbyterianism, lay dying. He would breathe his last shortly after 10 o'clock that night. He was 57 years old. About five hours before he passed away, around 5 p.m., Knox said to his wife, go read where I cast my first anchor. And she read to him the 17th chapter of the gospel according to St. John. This magnificent chapter that we begin today. This is all that is recorded of John Knox's love of John 17, but his wife knew exactly what he meant. It was here that he had cast his first anchor. This passage of scripture had been instrumental in his conversion and it had been something to which he had returned again and again. It anchored him. It held him fast in the raging storms of life and few have weathered more storms than he. This chapter is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. As our priest, of course, Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And he also makes intercession for us. He prays for us as our high priest. And here in John 17, we see Jesus, our priest, praying to his Father for us and for all his people. As we go through it together for the next three messages, God willing, my prayer is that like our great founder, John Knox, we will find solid rock in this passage. And in much the same pattern as the model prayer Jesus taught us, 
which begins with the Father. Our Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So Jesus' own prayer here in John 17 begins with the glory of God. Now let's look at it together. First in this passage, you see the glory of the Father and the Son. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now notice Jesus directs his prayer to his Father. I believe six times in this prayer, Jesus says the word Father. And again, not wanting to chase a rabbit or grind an axe, uh, but we must address at least most of our prayers to the Father. The Apostle Paul says that by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of Christ in our hearts, we cry, Abba, Father. We approach God as children to the Father. It's fine to address prayers to the Lord. The Psalms do that. But remember, Jesus taught us to pray to the Father even as he did. And here he asked for the Father to glorify him, the Son. And you also see in verse 1 that he asked the Father to glorify him because his hour has come. We sometimes refer to death as our time coming. You know, my, when my time comes, uh, whatever. It means when I die. And throughout the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about his hour, he is referring to his death. He is praying here for the Father to glorify him in his death. He is asking the Father to glorify the misery and shame of the cross. Also see in verse 1 the, the purpose of Jesus wanting the Father to glorify him. It is that he may in turn glorify the Father. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The Father glorifies the Son in his death. The Son glorifies the Father by His death. How does the shame of the crucifixion bring glory to the Father and the Son? Look at verse 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. You see there the eternal plan of salvation. The Father gave a people to the Son and empowered the Son to give those people eternal life. Now this does not mean that the Son had no divine authority or power or He was less than God and, and then at some point the Father promoted Him. No, this means that the Father in eternity past designated and appointed the Son to be the Savior of the people He would give Him. The Son is the divinely authorized agent of eternal life. He is the one who gives eternal life. This is the Father's eternal 
plan and purpose to give a people to the Son in order that the Son would give eternal life to them. But in order to give them eternal life, the Son had to die for His people. And so the Father glorifies the Son as He accomplishes the mission on which the Father had sent Him to the cross. And in fulfilling that purpose and mission in going to the cross, the Son glorified the Father. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In accomplishing the salvation of the people the Father gave him by going to the cross, the Son glorified the Father. So you see the glory of the Father and the Son. Secondly, you see eternal life. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here we have the definition of eternal life. Jesus, or John rather, has told us again and again that we may have eternal life by believing in Jesus. Now, John tells us what this eternal life is. And it is knowing God. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God. It's not knowing about God. It's actually knowing Him. I know a lot of, I know a, about a lot of people that I don't actually know. Eternal life is not found in knowing a lot about God. It is found in knowing God. Knowing Him personally. And Jesus says it is knowing the only true God. This is an exclusive claim. There is only one true God and it is the God or He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is eternal life that they might know Thee, the only true God. You see the end of verse 3, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. You cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ. And any claim of knowing Him or having eternal life and salvation outside of Jesus Christ is a false claim. And notice further that eternal life is not based on who you are or what you do. It is based solely on who you know. Now let's put this together. The Son is the one who gives eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. So the Son gives the only true knowledge of God. Furthermore, His 
hour had to come. That is, he had to die. This is why Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way into the knowledge of God. The Son reveals the truth of who the Father is. Through his death, he is the only way to the Father. And coming to him, we have the relationship with God that is eternal life. One of the old church fathers said, Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. But we have the way into relationship with God. We have the true knowledge of God. All in the person of Jesus Christ and therefore we have the life, eternal life in and only in the person of Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. You see the glory of the Father and the Son. You see eternal life. And thirdly and finally, you see the return to glory. Return to glory. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now this right here, verse 5, proves the full divinity of Jesus Christ. He is absolutely equal to the Father, the Son, always has been equal with the Father, always will be. He is not in any sense uh, subordinate to the Father. Although the Son, when he came to earth as man, uh, submitted himself, subordinated himself to the Father, but back in eternity, the Son is fully equal to the Father. And the divine Son of God is always fully equal to the Father. He says he had glory with the Father before the world was made. I remember one time I had a Jehovah's Witness in my house, uh, the house I rented when we lived in Lancaster, and, and we got to talking about he didn't believe Jesus was fully God, equal with the Father, and I asked him, was Isaiah 42, 8 in his New World Bible? And he looked it up. And sure enough, it was. Isaiah 42, 8 says, God says, Jehovah says, I will share, I will not share my glory with another, nor my praise with others. So I said, do you believe that means that God, Jehovah, will not share his glory with anyone else? And he agreed. That's what it means. Then I said to him, turn to John 17, 5. And he read it. Even in his Jehovah's Witness authorized and approved Bible, it said, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. And I said to him, if Jesus is not fully God, one with the Father, then God shared his glory with another, which he said he would never do. And as you well know, I got absolutely nowhere with him. <laughs> but I got a good illustration for you out of it. You reasonable people, you'll listen to me. 
But this is what Jesus is praying for. To return to the glory he had with the Father. Before the humiliation and shame of his suffering and death. Because he is and always has been fully God. But this is complicated. He did not stop being God while he was not on earth. Or while he was on earth, he, he remained God. Fully equal in glory and power to the Father. And Jesus in Verse 5 is not praying to return to exactly the way things were before all this. When he returns to the glory he had in eternity, he will be taking his human nature, flesh and blood, and his human soul with him to the throne. You see... For us to have eternal life, we have to know the Father through the Son. And what we find when we find God is eternal glory. Where God is, there is glory. So really, to live, have eternal life, we must be brought into contact with the glory of God. But this creates a dilemma. You remember when Moses asked the Lord, show me thy glory? And the Lord told Moses, no man can see me and live. The glory of God would obliterate sinful man. And so because of our sin, the very thing we must have in order to live, which is the glory of God, we must have the glory of God be in contact with the glory of God to have eternal life. But because we are sinned, the very thing we must have would kill us, destroy us. But Jesus Christ, in his flesh and blood, endured the hour of his passion and death and the eternal glory of God consumed Jesus Christ in our place. That through him and only through him we may see the glory and come into the presence, the immediate presence of the glory of the only true God, and not die, but have eternal life. And Jesus, in verse 5, is praying. He's going back to glory, and he's taking now his human nature with him back to glory, and he is taking us with him back to glory.
we come now to this table and we experience the glory of God. We share in the fellowship of the Father and the Son as we commune with our Lord and Savior. These elements of bread and the fruit of the vine show us that the glory of God crushed the flesh and blood of the Son and these same elements. Just as the real flesh and blood of Jesus. These are merely symbols. But just as his real flesh and blood, so at this table, by these signs, he reveals to us the glory of God. The glory that consumed him in order that it may give us eternal life.